Hello and welcome to the Armchair Sessions. The aim of these podcasts is to have fireside chats with people who essentially I think are interesting and have something important to say about the Christian faith and the world today. This is my first podcast, so I very much welcome any feedback you may have, but only if it is absolutely positive and singing my praises. So please do get in touch by Twitter or email, the details for which I will give at the end of the podcast. I should add that my name is Jack O'Grady. I live in London. Or amongst a few other things, I'm currently studying for a PhD in theology at King's, and I'll perhaps speak in a little more detail about that another time. On this podcast, however, I'm speaking with Nick Spencer, who is Research Director at Theos, a think tank on religion and society based in Westminster, just actually a short walk from the Houses of Parliament. I met Nick in his office to speak about his latest book, The Evolution of the West, which is a collection of short essays that explore the various ways in which Western values like human dignity, the rule of law, science, democracy, and even atheism are rooted in Christianity. Here is our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Nick, hi. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. I'd like to talk to you about your book, The Evolution of the West, How Christianity Has Shaped Our Values. And I thought we could kick off by looking at a comment that you make in the introduction about the current state of play of atheism in the UK. You talk about how when the think tank for which you work, Theos, was formed in 2006, Richard Dawkins had just written The God Delusion, and AC Grayling wrote um, or greeted Theos in rather hysterical terms um, in an essay that you quote. And um, Perhaps not hysterical, I thought more faintly mocking. Oh, OK. Yeah, so he uh, was not too happy about the, uh, the dawn of Theos. And um, you suggest that things have slightly moved on uh, from those days. And it's my hunch that a lot of Christian apologists today are still sort of having that conversation with the new atheists and are still sort of in 2006, so to speak. But you suggest the conversation has moved on. I wonder whether you could unpack that for us. I think the tone of the conversation has changed, if not always the subjects. So what marked the new atheist phenomenon, as it's ubiquitously known there, was not so much different arguments or a different subject matter, but the sheer contempt of a lot of the interaction and the sense that um, faith was an alternative to thinking and that therefore if you were a faith head, as um, some new atheists chose to put it, you were incapable of rational thoughts. That, I think, has passed. You still get lots and lots of trolls who voice those kind of opinions, but you're less likely to hear it on Radio 4 or wherever else it is. doesn't mean the subjects about which they've spoken have passed. I think, really, since I would have thought at least the middle of the 18th century, by my reading, there have been um, perennial subjects for dispute between theists and atheists, and indeed in many ways from many, many years before that, and they're still with us, and they're never going to go away, and in one sense, they shouldn't. That's part of you know, healthy disagreement and debate. But what I think has passed, as I said, is the sheer volume of, of contempt and disregard that was part of that wave. And a lot of that has been helped by atheists and secular humanists themselves, hasn't it? The, as well as the work of people like yourself and Theos. Uh, undoubtedly, in fact, in, in one sense, their criticisms of 
new atheist rhetoric are much more powerful than any theists. Criticisms might be a theist's criticism is almost invariably easily battered away with the, they would say that, wouldn't they, line. But when you have the editor of, um, I think it was a rationalist magazine saying in an editorial that Richard Dawkins was a case study of how not to do it, <laughs> then you think a line's been crossed. Yeah. Okay, so the uh, subtitle of your book is How Christianity Has Shaped Our Values. And I wonder whether I can present to you a perspective on that question and just get a sense of uh, your reaction and uh, your uh, how you respond to it. So um, Christianity has undoubtedly shaped the values of the West uh, in the past, and we tend to refer to those days as the Dark Ages, days of barbarity and ignorance. Um, following that, we have the Crusades and the Inquisition, um, Puritanism, and so on, and um, religious wars uh, in in the West that we that led to us essentially exhausting ourselves of uh, religion. And around the same time, the Enlightenment dawned from on high, as if from a non-existent heaven. And secular scientists, atheist philosophers, led us in the way of tolerance and of um, treating people with dignity and. Uh, celebrating discovery and understanding the world. Would you say that's a fair representation of history? No. <laughs> I'd say it was a caricature of history, to be honest with you. I mean, there's lots of different things to pick up there. Um, the Dark Ages were dark as a result of the most substantial economic and political collapse that the Western world has ever known, rather than the adherence to any particular ideology as several people, I mean, Alastair McIntyre perhaps most famously in After Virtues, suggested that what was the classical world was preserved by Christianity, specifically by the monasteries. Uh, they're the ones who are responsible for the material survival of more or less everything we know textually of the ancient world. So I've got rather a soft spot for the Dark Ages, despite the fact they're dismissed as, as, as Dark Ages. Um, Similarly, the idea that a humanists of the Renaissance period were in any way non-religious is simply historically not correct. Many of them were quite sincerely so and were desirous of marrying their um, Catholic, as we would call it now, faith with the newly rediscovered and reappropriated text of the classical world. Um, science not called that really for until, until the 19th century, but you know, using the term anachronistically of the 17th century was launched with theological rocket fuel, really. The justification for the scientific project came very heavily from scriptural and theological reasons, particularly those in Protestant cultures. Um, also, it has to be said, as a result of the massive epistemological crisis that affects the Western European world in the later 16th century. How do we know what we know? That made the way for it. And similarly, the Enlightenment did not fall from heaven. Um, you know, before, um, you know, uh, if you like, Kant and Voltaire, there is Locke. And um, I think that whereas you do see a significant move towards if you like, more autonomous thought in the 18th century. You can't understand what happened in the 18th century without some way understanding some of the, again, theological precedents from the 17th century. Now, that story itself skirts over the fact that Christians were pretty good at murdering one another, murdering other 
Abrahamic believers who didn't agree with one another and dragging most of Western Europe into the worst conflict it was to experience for another 250 years or so, I think it's probably fair to say there were sins on both sides. Do you think the um, latter examples you give of Christians misbehaving and uh, not living up to the ideals of their faith is the main causal factor for precisely why people are generally in our culture not particularly aware of the depth um, and um, pervasiveness of Christian influence on the uh, values that you uh, you tackle in the book. Um, I, I wouldn't actually, but that's only because it's so such a long time ago. Our current ignorance, however much it might be, of the Christian foundations of of, of the West aren't due to the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War did act have a massive impact and in effect it laid the paved the way for what was to become atheism um, in lots of different ways partly because it set protestants attacking catholics and catholics attacking protestants both in terms of their belief systems their intellectual foundations throwing at one another arguments that were then picked up by atheists in the 18th and 19th century and more significantly because these attempts to appropriate power in the name of my god or or your god ended up in such bloodshed and so general belief was that somehow or other we must divorce religion or christianity from power it was a very very long time time coming in most european countries but it did have that effect but let's not forget that what looked to some people, say, in the latter years of the 18th century as the very slow, inexorable decline of the Christian influence on the mind and the thought of the West didn't really happen. And the 19th century was in many ways much more religious, much more Christian, at least in many countries, than the 18th century. So where we are today, I don't think can be pinned on where we were in the 17th century. There are other intervening reasons which isn't to say that the 17th century wasn't vitally important for a significant turn that Christianity took in Western Europe. Okay. What would you see as some of the reasons for why people today are not particularly aware of the the cultural rootedness of of these values within a Christian, as you put it several times, the Christian soil? Well, I suspect there are different reasons from one country to another. Um, in France, if we were to have this conversation, you'd say laissez-faire and the resolute divorce of church from states uh, back in 1905. Of course, the UK does not enjoy laissez-faire in, in, in that way and in many ways has had one of the most amenable established churches in Western Europe. Yeah. And so there are no very obvious reasons for that on that account. It's not as if people today are aggressively rebelling against a malign, small-minded, sectarian established church. Mm. Even its harshest critics find it hard to pin that on it. I think it's probably partly a result of the fading of the Sunday school movement. Wow. Um, Okay. Now, it's not only that, but the churches in this country pioneered universal education in the first decades of the 19th century. Um, That's what we would call mainstream secular education and also what was called Sunday school education. Yeah. And biblical knowledge was very high in later Victorian uh, Britain, 
not just England, because the vast majority of children had attended either some church-based school during the week and possibly also a Sunday school on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, as they often were. And even up until the 1950s, that was quite prevalent. There was a very, very rapid, astonishingly rapid decline of that in the post-war period. In the same way, or actually sometime after, um, the Butler Education Act in 44 shifted the British education system in a slightly more secular direction. Not by all means wholesale at all, but a slightly more secular direction. So having been an absolute mainstay of the educational system for 100, 150 years or so, Christianity all of a sudden was either much less present or no longer there at all. And that came at the same time, roughly, as um, a significant liberalisation shift in British culture, which rather tended to demote or sideline traditional Christian ethical principles from the 1960s and 70s. And the result was that a, ne- a, a generation, myself included, I'm born in 1973, grew up knowing, frankly, sod all about Christianity. I find that fascinating because uh, immediately that's a much more concrete uh, answer to the question of precisely how this decline has um, ha- has happened. It's not one that I've heard made uh, elsewhere. No, um, I've never really written about it either. So I'm. Okay. I'm, I'm oh, you I'm, must. You must. I, I'm, you... I'm, 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 Open to people saying to me, no, no, you've got that completely wrong. But okay. I think I wouldn't put it all down to that. Um, no, so I think but there's something there. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if um, if there was some sort of concrete studies done on that and um, that that could be demonstrated. There is another just worth yeah. making point here, a possible explanation or parallel explanation was that the result of our decline in knowledge of Christianity was because we all thought we were Christian. Now, that sounds right. very kind of oxymoronic. But I remember years ago, I started off life as a qualitative and quantitative researcher, and years ago I remember doing qualitative research groups with people who had or hadn't put Christian in their 2001 census. And those who had put Christian in their 2001 census didn't want to know anything about Christianity because they, as far as they were concerned, were Christians. Now, as it happens, they knew quite astonishingly little about Christianity. One of my choice moments was when one of my respondents in one of the groups asked in response to something somebody else had said whether war and peace was part of the Bible. <laughs> it, was, it was genuinely okay. that, le- yeah. that lack of knowledge, a level of lack of knowledge. Yeah. But there was the sense that they didn't need to know more because they had this kind of loose cultural identity which was sufficient. Yes, yeah. It was an interesting comparison, as, as it happens with Islam at the time, about which they knew no more, mm. but they knew that they didn't know very much about Islam, as opposed to Christianity, which they thought they knew quite a bit about. That is fascinating. Um, it would be good to talk about um, some of the contents of your book more specifically. I wonder, you deal with a range of values, dignity, rule of law, welfare, humanism, science, capitalism. Are there any of these um, where you think there is an especially obvious um, Christian influence um, where it can be seen particularly clearly? There are some, but it doesn't necessarily mean it can be seen particularly clearly today. So one example, perhaps the most concrete one would be rule of law. Now, it is self-evident to us today there should be rule of law. 
Historically, that has not been the case at all. Um, very much um, in many autocratic regimes. Um, what was it? It was Louis Louis the Sixteenth, Louis the Fifteenth, famous state, uh, famous statement: "L'État c'est moi, the state that's me." Hmm. And that's a kind of version of the idea that, say, the emperor in the Eastern Empire was above the law. He was the law. So the idea that everybody, no matter how much power, money, position they had, was under the same law is actually very counterintuitive. Now, it's a mainstay, absolute critical mainstay of the Old Testament. And you see it enter into English legal and political thought quite significantly in the 13th century, partly through the emergence of canon law, but also neatly, quite explicitly, in the way in which the Magna Carta draws conceptually on some of the ideas that the then Archbishop of the time, Stephen Langton, had been writing about when he had been at the University of Paris in the 1190s, when he was glossing on the Old Testament law and specifically Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, which talks about when the king is enthroned among you, he must take a copy of the law and read it and be obedient to it. In other words, so even the king, king in Old Testament Israel or King John, is subject to the law. And that is how, admittedly with many, many twists and turns afterwards, that particular concept in a concrete, almost obviously causal way, enters into um, the mainstream of Western legal and political life. Okay, that's fascinating. And I think readers will be surprised, though, to see that there are some uh, values or ideas within the book that really do not have an obvious link with Christianity other than being formed in opposition to Christianity. I mean, atheism, secularism, humanism. Um, I wonder whether you could just give us a brief idea of, particularly atheism, how how Christianity has shaped that as an idea and a value. The chapter on atheism in the book draws on um, a bigger history of atheism that I published a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and that argues effectively that uh, atheism, um, for here I'm talking about atheism in Western countries. I know there are atheistic uh, ideologies, possibly even religions in the rest of the world, and I don't know anything like enough about them to comment on them. But Western atheism emerged in a thoroughly, thickly Christian culture in which not only did belief in God govern your Sundays, but if you to govern your Mondays through to Saturday, and it literally governed. Belief in God was tied up with how you lived your life, how society was structured, how the economy worked, how families worked, how the seasons worked, how the cosmos worked. It was everything. So if you didn't believe in God for whatever reason, and we don't know of anyone who didn't definitely believe in God until about the 1720s, right, okay. although there were probably atheists of some description in the 17th century. If you didn't believe in God, it wasn't enough to say there is no God because that simply meant anarchy. It meant a detuning of the entire social structure and nobody wanted that. So you would have to say there is no God and therefore and come up with some substantive moral or political or economic or social alternative. 
the way in which those different alternatives emerged in a greater or lesser extent depended on, if you like, the space that they were given, or in fact not given, in the Christian cultures they emerged. I'll give you a brief example of that. England, latterly Britain, end of the 17th, early 18th century, is a comparatively tolerant country in Europe. That tolerance can be intellectually rooted quite clearly in the work of John Locke, and it's also scientifically quite advanced, and the greatest scientific mind of the age, Isaac Newton, explicitly roots much of his science, or at least links much of his science, to his Christian, albeit somewhat eccentric, Christian beliefs. So what you get there is a area in which um, non-belief or heterodox belief finds it very difficult to get its teeth into Christian orthodoxy because Christian orthodoxy is relatively tolerant and generous. So atheism doesn't really take off in Britain until 100 or so years later. In France, you have a much more outmoded, backward-looking educational system. You have a church which is less tolerant. In France, they are still publicly executing, in fact, publicly torturing and executing people for confessional crimes as late as the 1760s. And so intellectuals don't have that flexibility and they react more vigorously against it, which is why 1750s Paris is the atheistic capital of Europe. They've got something to get their teeth into. So the nature of the kind of atheism, the substantive atheism that emerges and the different paths it takes are dependent on the Christian cultures in which they emerge. It's a kind of a reaction against the Christianity in which they're formed. Okay, it's fascinating because I think um, a lot of atheists or actually anybody interested in the subject will be um, perhaps surprised to see just how textured atheism is and and varied. Um, and I I remember reading your book a couple of years ago when it came out, and that uh, as well as well as being enormously informative itself, I've found was um, something that I took away from it that um, atheism is not simply just one thing not just one thing very much context better talk about atheisms rather than atheism yeah Yeah, that's helpful Um, so you uh, in some concluding comments in the book talk about the benefits of um, rediscovering uh, or becoming more aware of the way in which these various values are rooted within Christian soil I wonder whether you could touch on what some of those benefits might be for readers today. Yeah, that's a difficult one, really, because there is a temptation towards hubris or apocalypticism in answering that question. Mm. The hubristic temptation is one which says, if only we could re-embrace our Christian whatever it is, then everything's going to be fine, ignoring the <laughs> fact that it most certainly won't be because it wasn't in the past and there's a reason, no reason it should be in the future. And the alternative is the apocalyptic response, which says, if we don't do this, the world is going to hell on a handcart, which it may well at the moment for all 2016 yeah. has, has shown sure. us. But um, again, you know, that's un, uh, undue. Um, okay, the, the first thing is simply just truth. I think truth matters mm-hmm. and um, where we are as uh, Western Europe and, and um, in, in Britain, owes a lot to Christianity and I think you know if you're interested in truth if you're interested in genuine kind of intellectual linkages and lineages I think it's worth knowing it's the first reason 
Second reason is an Orwellian reason, really, which is, um, as he, as he wrote in 1984, paraphrasing, he controls the past, controls the present, mm. he controls the present, controls the future. If you are at any point ever worried about people being able to shift our framework for reality in such a way as to lead society or culture, politics, economics down, uh, dehumanizing paths, it's much easier to do that if they're able to eradicate any historical uh, pres- uh, historical um, frameworks that pull in the other direction. And so um, I-, I think it just, you know, a, a grounding of um, where we know who we have been makes it easier to engage in a genuinely humanising public conversation about where we should be going. Two very general responses. A third, slightly more specific one, is that we are, I think, in some way seeing a a, a backlash against liberalism today. Uh, People talk about post-liberal moments in politics. And the danger is that we are embracing atavistic, aggressive, nationalistic forms of post-liberal politics. No idea who you could be talking about. Here. I, 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 nor, nor do I. I mean, I, let's um, let's not let's not name names. I wouldn't want to be, you know, wouldn't want to be seen to be critical of Donald Trump, um, and others perhaps. Let's um, let's see what happens in France. Sure. Yes. Um, now, th- this is uh, the elements of a reaction against social liberalism here, and certainly against economic liberalism. And in many ways, I think it's it's been a long time in coming and it's not necessarily an unhealthy thing for various reasons that we won't get into now, although the form it's taking is unhealthy. Hmm. Um, th- this is where you move into kind of anthropological ideas and I think it's partly a response against the anthropology of liberalism which disembeds people from those networks that give them identity and community and security. And... Christianity and a Christian anthropology, which is much more relationally constituted, tries to embed people in those relational networks. And I think that a greater awareness of that might help this post-liberal movement, whatever it is, from adopting those less pleasant um, mores and Mm. inclinations and will serve as a corrective to the rather disembodied self we've seen from the liberal anthropology the last 20 years or so. So I think greater understanding of what Christianity has done and how it understands the human good can help that. Again, this is a very highfalutin theoretical answer. A more concrete one is, you know, it's the kind of stuff we do at Theos all the time, recognising and encouraging the concrete good yeah. that churches and indeed other religious and non-religious communities do within civil society. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that is so interesting. And I kind of wish we had more time to go into some of those things because it would be so interesting to talk with you, particularly about our current context and, and some of those things you've just picked up on, as well as actually the work of Theos um, more broadly. But we don't uh, have time. But thank you so much, Nick, for being willing to have a conversation about your book. It is a fantastic book. I think very, very well written. And I... Uh, I'm planning on reading it again because there's just so much in there that I just wasn't I wasn't aware of, and I did go to Sunday school, so uh, <laughs> I uh, would uh, 
definitely I will be recommending it to people and also the way you concentrate you you, you um, offer a sort of concentrated and uh, perhaps a um, simplified version of some arguments that are perhaps inaccessible to people who don't want to wade through um, some Charles Taylor's tomes or, um, or Thomas Piketty indeed yeah indeed I, I don't think I'll be going there in a hurry but um, I uh, certainly enjoyed your rendition um, and uh, listeners might be interested to know there's an event coming up in which you're uh, engaging with um, Theo Hobson, is that right? Who's written a book along some That's right, yes. Well, there's a couple of... So I'm just in discussion with Theo. He's written a book um, about God-created humanism, um, and that's mm. at Theos um, in March. It's on the Theos Think Tank website. But we're all, we've also got a debate at King's in uh, 14th of March, I think, on okay. religion and atheism, which is a debate or discussion debate between myself Julian Pagini, um, a couple of others, I can't remember, it might be Lois Lee, okay. based on um, a book that we all contributed to called Religion and Atheism Beyond the Divide. And that's in right. yes, uh, yeah. Chapel in March. Oh, fantastic. Well, I shall definitely try and get along there. That's in the King's Chapel on the Strand. That's right. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much, Nick, for uh, being willing to talk. Thank you. Pleasure. If you would like to get in touch, you can drop an email to thearmchairsessions at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at AC Sessions. Thank you for listening.